Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to, first, or to the Gospel according to John chapter 15, a familiar place by now. The Gospel according to John chapter 15, beginning with the first verse. Now, we've enjoyed and been blessed by and challenged by strong teaching on the subject of abiding in Christ in recent weeks. Uh, one which I'll endeavor to bring some degree of conclusion in this final message of the series. In the first message in this series, we learned of our connection, our connection to the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, and its life-giving power. Then of our need to be pruned, a subject that none of us likes, none of us enjoys, none of us looks forward to, and yet is absolutely essential. It is absolutely essential in the life of every true believer in Christ. In fact, I would go so far to say that if you have never been pruned, if you have no concept of spiritual pruning in your life, you are probably not connected to the vine. This pruning makes room for God's transforming expansion in our lives. Don't you want that? A transforming expansion in your life? I don't want to diminish. I want to increase. And finally, we heard a warning about identification as a withered branch. A withered branch. A branch that is disconnected. It has lost all source of nurturing life, it becomes dry and brittle, it certainly cannot, will not ever bear fruit, and it is good for nothing but to be thrown on the fire and burned. Today, however, we will learn how God's eternal, his unconditional love for and in his branches, through his branches, provides a blessed protection a reassurance, and a joy in our lives. Let's look at the scriptures. John chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, let's say it together, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Absolutely, absolutely an astounding verse. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would open our hearts and minds to receive the truth. Lord, would you graciously open our understanding, and may you apply that word to us, that we might grow thereby and bear much fruit, to the glory of your name and to the joy of our souls. In Jesus we pray, amen. Now, one of the struggles that many have with such direct teaching, commanding us to abide, to bear fruit, to obey, and to love, is that we can easily view this legalistically, or in other words, to view it as another list of things to do, to earn God's favor, rather than Receive it as the instruction to be. Now, I want to speak just very, very quickly to this because I have suffered from this malady. How about you? I was raised very, very much in, uh, after coming to Christ as Savior, in an environment early on that spoke much about what I could immediately do and must do. And so I worked hard. I worked to the point of physical, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion, not just as a layman, but then as a young minister. And I became deeply discouraged at times about how difficult it was for me to please God. And there were times when I certainly felt that God did not love me or he couldn't like me because I had failed in my devotional life or maybe not shared Christ with enough people. Hear me in this. This is not another teaching on all the things that you must do to please God. In fact, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more, to hold you any more securely, We are held fast in the love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross, not in what we have done to earn his favor. And so do not hear that message when we talk about abiding in Christ and how important it is for us to bear fruit and to obey his commandments and to to experience his joy and his love and share that love with others. Don't view it as a legalistic list of to-dos. You know, I don't, uh, my wife, I... For Christmas, I got her a couple years ago, a couple Christmases ago, I I got a Bible for both uh, she and our daughters, and it's uh, the Christian Standard Bible, the She Reads Truth. Uh, Maybe a number of you have that, and you read it. Uh, I know in Aletheia, a number of people have been influenced, and in our Elevate ministry, but And you may have read the accompanying devotion that goes with John 15. I wanted to share this with you because I found it to be particularly helpful in this regard. This is an excellent address of this issue of legalism about fruit bearing. She, the author, writes, I'm the queen of focusing on wrong things. And gentlemen, just because it comes from a female perspective, don't exclude yourself from this illustration. She goes on to say, my daughter makes an amazing piece of 
eight-year-old art and declares it dedicated to her mom. That's me, she says. And I silently lament. Instead, the sea of paper covering the floor and the glue stick smashed into all the creases of the dining room table. A long-lost friend says she and her family are coming to visit for a weekend. And I, I spend more time worrying about the condition of the guest room than rejoicing in the long conversations and late-night laughter to come. My husband spends hours creating new storage solutions for our mudroom slash laundry room slash pantry coat closet place the dog stays during dinner so she won't eat food off of our plates. And I involuntarily scowl that my tired, dirty, three-compartment clothes hamper will no longer fit. And she says to the ladies here particularly, three compartments, ladies, you understand what I mean. What I mean. <laughs> And here in John 15, Jesus says this, Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, the one who remains in me and I in you, and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing, excuse me, without me. But do you know what I, what I hear? She says, I hear, bear fruit. Go out and bear fruit. If you're who you really say you are, you get out there and bear fruit. Or to be more specific, hey you, why aren't you bearing fruit? Is that the message that you hear? I, the queen of focusing on wrong things, read Jesus' words and hear all the goal and none of the grace. I want the end, but I forget the means. Yes, bear fruit. Yes, love others. Yes, give grace to a world that will misunderstand and even hate us. But look back through John 15. Jesus is not commanding his disciples to bear fruit. The command is to what? Remain. To abide. When we remain, when we abide in the never-ending, unconditional, forever love of Christ, then the fruit will come, but only then. And when we do bear fruit, we give thanks to the vine, not to ourselves. I thought that to be a particularly pungent illustration. Now, we could say, because we've heard so much teaching on fruit bearing, but there might be some confusion among some of us today. Well, what kind of fruit, as I abide in Christ, what kind of fruit should I be looking for? What would help me identify whether I'm being productive in really, truly abiding in Jesus Christ? Well, in the second of two messages that John MacArthur uh, brought on the benefits of abiding in Christ, he shared, and I listened to this sermon a couple different times, and I thought, oh, that is so good. I want to jot down these points and share them with you. And so here they are. These are some foundations of abiding fruit. First of all, we see, and you'll see it on the screen above, the fruit of repentance. In Matthew Chapter 3 and verse 8, we read this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see that scripture up there. Bear fruit in keeping with, with repentance. True sorrow and, and a resentment for sin. That's an evidence of fruit bearing. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Now, this is not, oh, rats, I got caught again. Oh, you know, my wife found out that I'm, you know, I'm spending money, too much money, you know, at the bowling alley or playing golf or whatever it may be or, or oh, my husband's going to be mad at me again because I just compulsively went out and spent $150 on a bunch of stuff that I don't really need or whatever it may be. No, this is not that kind of a thing. Rats, I got caught again. No, this is a true sorrow because you've broken the heart of God. Because you have created in your disobedience and your selfishness and your self-centeredness and my self-centeredness a barrier in our immediate relationship with God, at least the warmth of it. This is, this is a real sorrow and a resentment for sin. And that's an evidence. Our willingness to confess this sin to the Lord quickly. Secondly, we see the fruit of spiritual attitudes, the fruit of spiritual attitudes. First, the fruit of repentance, then spiritual attitudes. In Ephesians 5, 9, the word of God says this, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Amen? This is an internal love of goodness of righteousness and truth. And back in the fall, we spent a lot of time studying together from Galatians chapter 5 regarding the fruit of the Spirit. These are the internal things that the Spirit of God brings forth. You don't lobby the Holy Spirit for this or this or this. No, these evidences of fruit come forth because you're abiding in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and he is naturally bringing forth these fruits. I don't need to say anything more about that because we've spent so much time talking about those, that fruit of the Spirit. And so this is exactly what we're talking about, a fruit of spiritual attitudes, fruit of repentance, of spiritual attitudes. Third, the fruit of worship. In Hebrews 13, 15, the Word of God says this, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The fruit of worship. Earnest worship of God with your lips. With your lips. How often as a worship pastor over many, many years, I hear people say, well, you know, I don't really need, I don't, I don't have a very good voice and so I don't sing. And oftentimes, let's be honest, that's an excuse because you're too lazy to open your mouth. Or maybe your heart is just so dead inside and you're just so disconnected from the vine, you've got no gratitude in your heart and you don't feel like opening your mouth and singing to the Lord. I know that sounds harsh, but I have to tell you, there have been times in my own life when because of my own selfishness and disobedience and because I have allowed clouds to develop between my Lord and I, in that relationship, that I have had very little motivation for opening my mouth and actually singing the words, and that coming from the mouth of a guy who was responsible for leading worship for a number of years. How about you? Is there an earnest desire to praise God that transfers to your lips so that not just God hears, but other people around you? What a difference, what a transformation it is within a church when the body of Christ rises up together and sings the praise of the living God in an unashamed way. And that may mean that you bellow like a cow. 
But who cares? Do it to the honor and glory of God and the good of his church. So it's the fruit of worship. Unconnected, unrepentant branches can't do that. Real worship results in salvation or true connection to the vine, a repentant spirit, and a right spiritual attitude. It's saying back to God the things that are true about him and about our relationship to him. Fourthly, the fruit of gifts to the needy. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Even in Thessalonica, Paul says, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, the ESV properly translates this word fruit. Some versions say profit. Our gifts to those in need become seeds that bear fruit. And you don't know when a particular gift is going, what what kind of fruit it's going to bear or how it's going to take root. You have no idea. That's not your business to know. It is your business, however, to cast these seeds of kindness and service and care and careful ministry into ground that needs it. So fruit of gifts of the needy. Our gifts to those in need become seeds that bear fruit. This telling element of true love for the brethren is an evidence of true connection to the vine. And you may want to write this down for the sake of time. I'm not going to go there. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. Jot that down in your notes. 1 John 4, going along with this fruit of gifts to the needy, chapter, chapter 4, 19 to 21. Fifthly, the fruit of edifying communication. Now, this is a long, long passage of Scripture. I invite you to write this passage down. 1 Corinthians 14, the fruit of edifying or building up communication. Communication that builds, that does not tear down. And the reference is 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 through 19. Now, let me just say this about edifying communication. Selfish communication is not to the building up of others. And there is a lot of selfish communication that goes on in the church. When we communicate, we are called to do so with a spirit and a mind in a way that will graciously instruct, that will build up. Let us not be so interested in immediately responding to someone's need by telling them how much we're hurting and what we've been through that it very clearly conveys that we don't really care about what's going on in their lives. Number six, the fruit of holiness. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Pure conduct, righteous behavior that sets us clearly apart. Apart from who? The disconnected and the withered. And lastly, the fruit of gospel proclamation. In John chapter 4, verses 35 and 36. Do you not say, 
There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. The fruit of gospel proclamation. Folks, at some point, and I challenge people in our nine o'clock class this morning, at some point you have to use words. Lifestyle evangelism is a good thing. It's a great thing. I mean, if you're out there preaching the gospel and you act nasty and you act uncaring towards people and you do a lousy job at work, you're not setting a very good foundation for gospel proclamation. So live a life that honors God and shows the truth of the gospel in your life, but at some point you've got to use words. You have to use words. We have to realize that we're surrounded by those who are literally dying with eternal consequences. When they die, when they take their last breath, they will not be in heaven. Instead, they will be in the agonies of hell. Oh, and how unpopular is that subject today? How dare I say something so direct? And yet this is the truth of the word of God. God's work is to gather fruit for eternal life. Now, in articulating these divine truths, we may hopefully find clarification in regards to our own personal standing. That's why I spent so much time giving you these foundations of abiding fruit. Because you need to ask yourself honestly, and don't make this a legalistic exercise, but make it a prayerful one, an honest one between you and the Lord God. How many of these things are evidence? Now, you may be weaker in some areas than others, but there ought to be a reality of all these areas of fruit in your life if you're connected to the vine. And so as we find clarification in regards to our own personal standing in relationship to the vine, whether we're truly abiding in him or not, regardless of how you interpret John 15, verse 6, and in John 15, verse 6, that is the, that is the verse that talks about how uh, the, those who do not abide, they're thrown away like a branch and wither, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Regardless of how you choose to interpret that as you study this passage of Scripture, that language should cause every one of us concern. Let's not toy around with that. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, God forbid How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? If you're living your life with with a sense of having obtained fire insurance so that you can go out and pretty much live however you want, I can tell you right now you're not connected to the vine. So what are some of the benefits then of abiding in Christ? Well, we see it here in verse 7, which is our primary passage today, 7 through 11. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is fruitful prayer, folks. Really fruitful prayer. Don't we all, if we know Christ, hope and pray that when we pray, God will hear and he will respond and he will meet the need for which we pray. Right? I mean, if, if it's not true, then why pray? But there is so much to pray about. There are so many people hurting on our prayer list and hundreds beyond that. 
And in your own life, how many things are there to give to the Lord in your family, your friends, your neighbors around you, the lost world, the government around us, the mess that we see in our world today, the darkness, the missionaries who minister in dark places. There is much to pray for. I want my prayers to be fruitful. I want them to be like bombs that go off. I want them to explode, and I want them to have a deep impact for the kingdom of God. But instead of destroying what these prayer bombs do is they build up, they bring life. That's what I want working in my life. How about you? For that to happen, you have to abide in him, and he has to abide in you through his word. How does Jesus abide in you? It's this way. Through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. Let's not disconnect this. Let's not make light of the Bible. You can't just throw this in the back seat when you leave church today and leave it there and expect that you're going to grow. This thing can't sit on the coffee table or on the shelf. It has to be picked up and read every day. Now, you can make that a legalistic exercise, and you can say I'm being legalistic, but friends, I I eat two to three times a day. Why should I think that when God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that I can get by without reading God's word every day. Read the word of God. He is the living word. It's impossible to truly abide in Jesus without his word abiding in you. And then here's this amazing, profound statement. Ask, and it will be done. Wow. This seeming carte blanche promise is full of meaning. Now, I have found in the last few years a particularly helpful little resource. It's called The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith, Daily Readings by C.H. Spurgeon. Anybody else have it? Somebody's chuckling back there. You have it? The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. I want you to hear this. Of necessity, Spurgeon writes, we must be in Christ to live unto him. And we must abide in him to be able to claim the large, the large, the fullness of this promise from him. And the promise is, ask and it, and it will be done. He's referring specifically to 15.7. To abide in Jesus is never to quit him for another love or another object, but to remain in living, loving, conscious, willing union with him. The branch is not only ever near the stem, but ever receiving life and fruitfulness from it. All true believers abide in Christ in a sense. True believers But there is a higher meaning, and this we must know before we can gain unlimited power at the throne. Ask what ye will, he says, is for the Enoch's who walk with God, for John's who lie in the Lord's bosom, for those whose union with Christ leads to constant communion. Like Brother Lawrence, the 16th century monk who wrote the little treatise practicing the presence of Christ, to make it your Aim every day, all day long, to walk in the presence of Christ, to commune with him regularly. The heart must remain in love. The mind must be rooted in faith. The hope must be cemented to the word. The whole man or woman must be joined unto the Lord, or else it would be dangerous to trust us with power and prayer. Can you imagine what our prayers would do if we were living selfishly, unconnected to the vine? We would wreak so much havoc. That would be like... uh, the, what was that crazy movie that Jim Carrey was in, the Truman 
show or something, wasn't, isn't that the one where he was given the power to be like God for a while and answer prayers? What was it? Bruce Almighty, thank you, thank you. Bruce Almighty, that just came to my mind. But what a, what a, what a uh, popular cultural uh, illustration this is of what damage we would do praying selfishly. And so our prayers must be rooted in an abiding life that is guided clearly, regularly by the word of God. And then when you're abiding in Christ and his words are living in you and you're staying close to him, when you pray, you're praying what he wants. Now, we have a ministry in this church that meets on Wednesday nights. It's called uh, Scripture-Fed, Spirit-Led Prayer. And there are some of you in this room who are a part of that ministry. I invite you to be a part of that at 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. What they do is they read the Word of God, and then they pray right through the Word of God. Can there be anything more powerful than that? As we commit ourselves to surrendering to the Word of God, we pray the Word of God right back to God. And so when God says, I want to give you this, and you're reading it in the word of God, you claim it in Christ. But it has to come from a life that's abiding in him. Enough of Spurgeon for now. I think I've said enough concerning that. Ask and it will be done. I want my prayer life to be based in that. Secondly, we see in verse 8, fruitful prayer glorifies God. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruitful prayers bear much fruit. It sounds almost ridiculous, it's so simple. Fruitful prayers prove that I'm a disciple. By the power of my prayer life, I prove that I'm connected to Christ. I want that to be evident. Thirdly, and under the benefits... In verses 9 and 10, we read, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Live in this love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And how has the Father loved the Son? In John 3, verse 35, you can jot that down if you want, John 3, 35, we see that the Father loved the Son by giving all things to him. He committed everything to Christ. Now that's perfect union. That's perfect love. That's perfect trust. You don't turn over the keys to the kingdom to somebody that you don't trust. If you're retiring from your business, you don't turn the business over to somebody who's going to destroy it, mess it up, or be selfish with it. No, here is perfect trust from God the Father to God the Son. He's given all things to him. That's how God the Father has loved the Son. This love between the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the baseline of love for us. It's this, it is the source. You don't find it somewhere else. I hear people make the argument all the time, I don't really need religion to love. I love my wife fine. I love my kids fine. I love other people fine. I serve other people. And isn't it a shame that the lost world can love other people better than us? that they can give more sacrificially than we would give as, ch- as children of the kingdom of God, that shames me. That convicts me. This perfect love in the Trinity, this is the source. This is the love that is the byproduct of abiding in Jesus Christ because we share directly in this overflow of love that comes be- in-, in the Trinity of God. 
While the shadow of love is often seen in the lives of unbelievers, the pure and truest form of it is not present. Present, It simply cannot be apart from the source. It makes no sense. If we can say that we can love just as well outside of Christ, then what we are saying is Christ makes no difference. And we are saying that he is not God. Let's be straightforward about it. Jesus loves us the same way. He loves us the same way. He gave us all things. He gave us his own life to prove his love to us. And we then are supposed to give our lives to prove our love for others. Live in that love. Stay connected continuously. Living in God's love requires obedience to his commands. Jot down 1 John 1, 3 through 10. 1 John 1, 3 through 10. I believe in the small group notes you'll see a reference to what Schofield writes about this. Through the word of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit shows the Christian that he, number one, still possesses an old nature. Secondly, needs the forgiveness of his sins. And the blood of Christ is the divine provision for both. To walk in the light is to live in fellowship with the Father and the Son. Sin interrupts fellowship but cannot change relationship. Confession restores fellowship. And immediate confession keeps the fellowship unbroken. So, what I would say to you is this. Keep short accounts. Keep short accounts. Don't don't wait. Go hug the bear. In other words, you're afraid of God, you're afraid of what he's going to say, you're ashamed, go hug the bear. I know God can seem terrible and wrathful at times when we're disobedient, but just go get close to God. Hug him, confess, weep, repent, lay it before him, keep short accounts, and stay in that relationship. In the wonderful story of Ruth, there is a passage which I don't have time to read right now, but I want to refer to. Here's an Old Testament example of clearly abiding and not abiding, first not abiding. Elimelech left the shelter of God's love when he moved his family to Moab, an enemy pagan nation, a nation with horrible, godless practices. And he moved out of, during a famine, he moved out of the land of Israel and the promises of God to go live in Moab. And he moved his whole family there. In essence, he sought another God, another love. He forfeited Yahweh's divine protection and provision, even to the point of losing his own life and those of his sons in their lack of abiding. He got out of the protection of God. Ruth, a Moabitess, chose to abide under the shelter of Naomi, her mother-in-law. Then Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, back in Israel as they returned. And ultimately then, under Yahweh, Naomi's return with Ruth to Israel resulted in Yahweh's perfectly restored protection and provision. So, do you find yourself discouraged today, feeling guilty about your spiritual life? Do you find yourself failing? Do you feel that you're not abiding well and you don't sense fruitfulness in your life? Get back under the protection of God's love. Get under that love. Go back to him, return to him, and you will find God's perfect restoration, protection, and provision. What grace, what redemption in this story written for you and me. God is always willing, despite our mistakes, to lead us back to his love and his perfect provision. Jot down Psalm 37, verses 3 through 5. Do good, dwell on the land. 
Psalm 37, 3 through 5. And lastly, abiding in God's love brings full joy. These things, abiding, fruit-bearing, obeying, and loving, full joy. Honestly, how is your joy? What's the joy meter like in your life? Is it circumstantial? Does it ebb and flow based on what good things are happening in your life, whether your health is good, financial state is great, uh, whatever? Or is it based on something much deeper, more permanent, more certain? Now, by way of application today, I want to put these up on the board, on the, not on the board, but on the screen for you, and we'll, we'll look at them together. First of all, God's commands are like an umbrella that completely protects and shelters us. His commands are an expression of his love. They're not hateful or hurtful. God is not a cosmic killjoy. God is your loving father. Secondly, no other love provides this coverage. We often expend enormous energy attempting to be covered, so to speak, by other lovers. What other lovers are you pursuing to cover you and make you feel good or tranquilize your pain? The results are always less than fulfilling, and they are often tragic. Thirdly, abiding continuously in God's love unlocks a limitless power in prayer. I want that. How about you? The end result of God's love is complete joy. So question, what's the quality of your joy? How's the completeness of your joy? And lastly, if you're offered the very best of something, why in the world would you choose less? If you're already offered the best, why would you choose less? So I want to close together today by reading Psalm 27 for Would you stand with me as we read the word of God together? And then we'll pray, and then we'll dismiss. Let's read Psalm 27, 4 together. Directly in regards to what it means to abide in Christ and to enjoy the presence of God and the fruitfulness that comes from it. Read with me. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, you loved me before I loved you. Even as I was an enemy, a rebel, a sinner, Love brought you from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and praise God from the grave to the sky. Let me see your love everywhere, not only in your cross, but in the fellowship of believers and through me to others. As a result, you are preparing joy for me and me for joy Give me more than I can hold, desire, or think of. There is no joy like the joy of heaven. No sad divisions. No goodbyes to our loved ones and friends. No unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil designs. No more weariness, hunger, or cold. 
No more sadness, sin, suffering, persecutions, or toils of our duties. Bring me speedily, Lord, to the land of true joy as I remain connected, abiding ever in you. We pray this in the name of your blessed Son, the vine, Jesus. Amen.